0: If you would, please stand with me and open your Bibles to Psalm 63 as Dan Shriok comes to share the word today. Thank you. Good morning. Hey, let's read the first four verses this morning, Psalm 63. This is what it says. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life my lips will glorify you i will praise you as long as i live and in your name i will lift up my hands let's go to the lord in prayer father we want to be praisers and worshipers who whom you are pleased with god we want to be able to worship and honor you and praise you with passion lord with everything within us we want to do so in a biblical way, in an orderly way, Lord, and God, I pray that as we speak today, as as, as Lord, I, as I deliver this message, Lord, that you would let us hear from you. Let us hear from your scripture, your word. No one is interested in my opinion, God, but we are very, very interested in yours. Let us know your will today, and let us walk out, Lord, encouraged and challenged to be more passionate in, in our worship and our praise of you. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you grew up in a church, grew up going to church? Just curious. Yeah. Maybe half of us. I'm, I'm curious to know, um, those of you who did grow up in church, the ones who've raised your hand, how many of you went to a church that was more um, formal than Calvary Church? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean, don't you? You do. You know what I mean. I was raised in a small church of a particular denomination. And in that church, you know, we had Sunday morning services. We did Sunday school. We had Sunday evening services, Wednesday night Bible study and prayer. And we had a youth group. Um, we did VBSs. In the summers, I went to, I went to youth camp in the summer. and um, So in a lot of aspects, the church I grew up in was similar to Calvary, except really, really small. Um, and in our services... We stood and we sang out of the hymn books, and we would usually do things like um, sing verses 1, 2, and 4, or sing verses 1, 3, and 5, right? Yeah. I, what is it that we couldn't sing more than three verses? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But, but that's just what we did. We had both a piano and an organ. Those were our instruments. We didn't always have them both being played because, like I said, we were a small church, and we didn't always have you know musicians for both of them. Looking back, I realize that I I did grow up attending a church that was, you know, they had services that were vastly different than what takes place here at Calvary on Sundays. In fact, you know, as I look across the sanctuary, I, I realize that most of many of you, many of you, um, you know, it's the same thing for you. You either came from churches that were different, or or as as I saw from my first question, you know, a lot of you don't don't even have a church background. Maybe Calvary is is how you came to know the Lord, and um, because of that. Because of that, I think it's appropriate to talk about why do we worship and praise at Calvary the way that we do. You know, I talked um, a year ago. I think it was about a year ago. We did a series called "Why," and we talked about all kinds of things. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And 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 that that particular uh, Sunday I, last year, I talked about why do we worship, and it was more. Like from the biblical perspective, why do we worship? Today I want to talk about why do we do it in the way that we do? What, what, what is all about the things that we do? Let me, let me say this before I get started. This is an overarching principle. Our worship and praise should always be conducted in ways that are both biblical and orderly. So... Again, the last time I spoke was a couple months ago. We talked about being all in in worship, and, and I asked you a question that morning. I said, if you ever feel that we are doing something inappropriate, or if you ever feel that we are asking you to do something inappropriate, please tell us, and, and I want to ask you that same question today. I want to give you that permission again. If this ever happens, please, please do so. Okay, we agreed? Everybody good? Let's get started. The first thing I want to talk about is singing. Yeah, we're going to get into some deep theology this morning, aren't we? Um, I'm, I'm sure no one's surprised about this one, but I thought I'd start with the easy one, right? Let's start with the easy one and get it out of the way. I've read that the Bible contains over 400 references to singing and 50 direct commands that tell us to sing. I have to admit, I don't know. I didn't count them. It's just what I read. So if those numbers are wrong, I I apologize for that. But it's no surprise, based on that, that singing is a common element in just about every Christian church. Right? Just about every Christian church. And that it is probably the first thing that comes to mind when we talk about praise and worship, isn't it? We just just think about singing. That comes to mind. The Psalms contains numerous verses, I had a bunch of verses on singing, and we, we don't have time for me to go through all of them, but I want to just read one of them as an example, and that's Psalm ninety-five, verses one through two. And it says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, and let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So here's here's an interesting verse. Zephaniah 3.17. In this verse, in the Old Testament book of Zephaniah, we read that God sings. God sings over us. It says, The Lord, your God, is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Can you even imagine that? Can you get your mind wrapped around that? The God of all creation, the God of the universe singing over you, rejoicing over you with singing. We read in the scripture that Jesus sang. Um, Matthew and Mark both record that, at least he sang once. We know at the Last Supper, as, as they finished the Last Supper, before they left, it said, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And we meaning, I mean they, they meaning Jesus and his disciples. So we know at least one instance where Jesus sang. Paul and Silas sang. In the middle of the night, Paul and Silas had been beaten. In fact, the scripture says severely beaten, tossed into the innermost cell. And it says in Acts 16.25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, there's a sermon on that. That's quite remarkable. To be in those situations, that situation, and and, and be singing. We see in the Old Testament, let's go back to the beginning of the Bible, the second book in the Bible, Exodus, we see Moses and all of Israel singing. What had happened was, you know the story, Moses had just led the children of Israel across the Red Sea on dry ground. Pharaoh decided to follow with his army, and it said that the waters came in and destroyed every bit of his army. And here are Moses and, and all of Israel on the other side, and it says this. It says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and rider. He is hurled into the sea. Think about these thousands and thousands and thousands of people who had just seen God deliver them and they're singing this song. Now that song is it's pretty long. It's about eighteen verses. I just read you the first of it. You can you can read it yourself. And then finally, so that, that's the beginning of the Bible, the second book. If we go to the last book in the Bible, Revelation, we see singing in Revelation. And this is taking place in heaven in the future. We're getting a glimpse of the future. And in, in Revelation 15, it says, I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, they held harps given them by God, how many of you ever seen a cartoon of an angel or someone in heaven that got a little harp? Yeah, it's got some actual, it's actually got some, some, some real biblical basis to that, that little image. But they held harps given them by God and sang the, God, the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. So, to summarize, the Bible tells us to sing, Yeah? Moses did it in the Old Testament, and we see saints doing it in Revelation. Paul and Silas did it. Jesus did it, and God does it. Yeah? You think we should sing? Yeah, you think? I think so, too. Um, I think there's something to learn here. Charles Wesley is or was was the brother of John Wesley. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement. Charles Wesley was also a leader in that movement, and he was a prolific songwriter. And when I say "prolific," he wrote around 6500 songs <laughs> in a 50-year period. He wrote 6,500 about songs. And I say about I'm, I'm sorry, I'd, you lose count after a while, right? It's hard to be precise. But one of his first hymns, one of his earliest, was written one year, is actually written to mark the anniversary of him becoming a Christian. And this is how it starts. This was the first line of it. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Understand, Wesley was not saying, he was wanting a thousand people to sing. Wesley was saying, "I wish I had 1000 tongues and with every one of them, every one of them, I would sing my Redeemer's praise." You think that's foolishness? No, I don't. I'd rather think that's extreme praise. Yeah. That's extreme praise. Let's move on. One of the first things that people will notice at a church like Calvary when they come in during our praise and worship times is worshipers lifting their hands. It wasn't all that long ago that this was considered pretty much a practice at, at only charismatic or Pentecostal churches. Calvary has its foundations, its roots in the assemblies of God. That's a Pentecostal denomination. So here at Calvary, it's just like a natural thing to do. It's been just natural of us for raise hand, raising our hands in worship and praise. And yet I realize, and I have to remind myself of this as a worship leader, that for many people, not only is this kind of different, but for... You know, some people, depending on your background, this it may be kind of weird. They look at it and think, what are these people doing? In many denominations, for example, the only time you may have seen people raise their hand is when the minister uh, gives, gives a benediction or the blessing or the congregation. There's some denominations that they always wrap up their services with that, and you see a minister do that. Well, in Jewish culture, hands were normally lifted both in praise and in prayer. And we see that reflected a lot in Scripture. In fact, one writer said that there are 28 verses in the Bible that that talk about lifting our hands, either in prayer or praise or or in blessing. And and here's something interesting. When when you think about raising your hands in prayer, what do we teach our children to do when we teach them how to pray? Fold their hands, right? Just as an observation, it's interesting to note that that's never mentioned in the Bible. (laughs) Okay, hold on. You're not... (laughs) You're not a bad parent if you teach your kids to do that. That's not what I'm saying. Don't don't go tell Pastor Mark. You know what Dan said last week? Uh, Just an observation. Just an observation. Um, But with, with regard to praise, just lifting hands in praise, I want to read some verses to you. In Psalm 63, verse 4, it says, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. In Psalm 134, it says, Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. And then in Nehemiah, let me tell you what's going on here in Nehemiah. Um, you know, the, the people of Judah had been carried off into Babylon, into captivity, and they were there for a very long time. And, and finally, Nehemiah was allowed, after years and years, to bring a remnant back to Jerusalem, and, and he rebuilt the wall. The city was destroyed. The city was just destroyed. And Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, and it was a really big effort. And afterwards, they did a dedication. And Ezra, who was the priest was kind of in charge of the dedication service as it took place. And Ezra is getting ready now to read the book of the law to, to all the remnant of, of, of Judah who, who were there. He's going to read the book of the law. Before he does, before he starts, it says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. The Christian use of raising hands in in prayer or in praise is sometimes called Oron, or um, the the plural plural is Orani. It was common in early Christianity and can frequently be seen in early Christian art. For example, frescoes in the catacombs of Rome depict, and and there's a lot of examples of this, frescoes in catacombs of Rome depict Christians with their hands raised. Um, It wasn't until around the ninth century that this practice started to die out among Christians. And by the 12th, by the 12th century, it was, it was almost gone among Christianity until the 20th century when Pentecostals picked up this, this practice again as a return to biblical worship. And that's why we do it here at Calvary. It's not to, to be demonstrative. It's not to draw attention to ourselves, But it's because we think it's a biblical expression of surrender and praise. And, and, and I want you to understand as I talk about all these things, this is not the one and only God commanded way that you must worship Him. You know, if, I, I don't want to put any condemnation on, on anybody if, if you worship in, in other biblical ways. Then there's clapping. Yeah, let's get back to my story of my upbringing. We never clapped in church when I was growing up, we never clapped. And if somebody, um, if someone had sang a special song or played an instrument, we never applauded afterwards, ever. And to extent I get that, because I believe it would have been received as as giving praise to that purpose. You know, it wasn't our intent that Sunday mornings would be performances and we would praise the performers. It was, it was our intent that Sunday morning was time to worship and praise God. So um, we didn't do that, but we also didn't even clap our hands, you know, like to the rhythm of song until I remember when I was about in high school, we got a new pastor, and he taught us newer worship songs. And in that context back then, I'm talking about like things by Bill and Gloria Gaither and, I mean, put yourself in. You know, that time and place, what, what that meant. But even then, you know, it felt like a kind of a novel thing to do. It, it, it didn't really feel natural as a natural act of praise. But again, there are scriptures that talk about clapping as forms of praise. The most well-known one, I, I know you've heard this, this read before. You've read this one yourself probably. Psalm 47 verse 1 says, Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. We're familiar with that one, I'm sure. Psalm 98 says, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. And in Isaiah, the 55th chapter, we read, For you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. It's interesting that these last two verses show that even nature claps its hands. Isn't that that peculiar? Um, Clapping is a natural expression of joy because also in these scriptures, all three of them, clapping is associated with joy. All three of those scriptures. Clapping is a natural expression of joy not only in humans, but in nature itself, in all creation. Um, in, In talking about clapping our hands like with a song, like while we're singing in rhythm to a song, I look at that as no different than any other percussion instrument. Your hands become a percussion instrument, right? And um, I I think as long as things are done in order, it's a good way for people to corporately participate. Now, understand things have to be in order, right? You know, if someone came in here with some bagpipes and sat down and the ushers let them get in here with bagpipes and, (laughs) and sit down, and they just decided to join in with us as we're doing worship. That'd be out of order. Can we all agree with that? Yeah, yeah. And and, and likewise, you know, with clapping our hands, things have to be done in order. If we're we, we're doing a singing a quiet worshipful song, you know, it'd be kind of inappropriate to just start banging away, clapping our hands loud and, and fast together. Um, anything that would draw attention to yourself and away from worship to God is, is inappropriate. Anything is. But aside from clapping with music, the other, the other thing that you'll notice at Calvary and churches like Calvary is that we use applause as a vehicle to praise God. I think I can speak for all the worship leaders, all the, the band, the choir, and everybody when I say that we do not expect applause for the things that we do. And neither does Pastor Mark when he's up here preaching. He doesn't expect applause for what he does. What we do want is that people would offer a praise to God. And clapping our hands in applause is a way to corporately do that. And, And I think that's an important aspect of it. You know, praise and worship is a personal thing between you know the worshipper and God but it is also when we gather together like this it's a corporate thing and corporate applause people giving god praise is a way that we can do things to do do that together applause in our culture is defined like this i love this definition approval or praise expressed by clapping approval or praise if we use applause to honor people Praise people to honor people to show our approval. How much more? How much more should we do it to show praise and approval for God? Yeah. The next one I want to talk about is something that um, should be kind of obvious, you'd think, um, but it's something that the people I think really struggle with. We we had a time of this this morning during our worship set. And what I'm talking about is just speaking out our worship and our praise, or just talking to God. Revelation chapter 4 describes four winged creatures. These are the seraphim. And they're around the throne of God. And the Bible says, day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That 's in revelations four eight later we read about the twenty four elders now the twenty four elders the scene that John sees in revelation there 's god 's throne, and then there are twenty four thrones around it, and the elders are sitting in these thrones on these thrones so it 's talking about them and in the fourth chapter a couple verses later, it says, they lay their crowns before the throne and say You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And then in the seventh chapter, we read concerning the angels, and now all the angels are standing around the elders and the seraphim. And this is what it says in Revelation 7, verse 11. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In each of these instances, we see worshipers speaking their worship and praise to God. John, who to whom the book of Revelation was revealed, uses the Greek word lego. And lego simply means to say or to speak to describe these acts of worship. That's how he describes them. You see, it's, not, it's just not always necessary for us to sing praise. It, it isn't. At Calvary Church, you may hear people around you just telling God how awesome he is. You may have quite likely heard it this morning in that we try to make room for that in our worship times and in our songs. We try to make room for that so that people can express their praise that way. We, we did it today. Um, I do it as a worship leader. You know, you hear the choir do it. You hear people around you do it. And I encourage you to do that, to speak to God. Um, you know, when we finish songs, it's between songs or, or maybe a musical interlude in the middle of a song. It's an opportunity just to tell God how amazing he is and how much you love him. Now, I understand that that can be really awkward. I do. I, I, I get it. But it doesn't matter. Um, Really, the beauty of praising God is this. Think about it. You don't have to sing on pitch, you don't have to memorize lyrics, you don't have to be poetic. You just talk to God. You know, you don't have to be loud, you don't have to have a beautiful voice. And as far as knowing what to say, what do I say? Well, think about the seraphim. We just read this verse about the seraphim. What do they do? They sing the same thing day and night without stopping is what the Bible says. Holy, holy, holy Lord God who was, is, and was, and was to come. Who was and is. Yeah, sing something different. <laughs> who was and is and is to come. Um, you can also just repeat back lyrics to like the song we just finished finish singing, just just say the words instead of singing them. Just speak the words to God. And you know, a lot of people find that speaking lyrics to a song and just saying those words to God is more personal even than, than when they're singing them with everybody else. Okay. There are, there are a lot of other ways in the Bible that it talks about praising and worshiping God. You know, we haven't even touched on things like playing different kinds of instruments. Haven't talked about dancing uh, don't want to go there today. Uh, we, we haven't talked about kneeling or, or falling on your face before God. We haven't talked about any of those things. Because, you know, my point about addressing these topics this morning is not to define an exhaustive list of how we are to praise and worship God. Yeah, That's not my purpose. My point is to provide some insight so that you understand when you come into Calvary Church and you see people doing the things that they do, you, you understand... You know, we're just, just not crazy or disrespectful, but it's biblical, and there's a, there's a purpose to it. But the last thing I want to talk about today is, is rather the manner in which we do what we do when we worship and praise God. It's my desire that as you look around during worship and praise at Calvary Church, you will see people who are worshiping and praising with passion, with passion. We believe the words we are singing. We love and adore the God and Savior we are worshiping. And it drives us to praise and worship him with everything that is within us. If all we do when we gather together to praise and worship is just go through some prescribed motions, we've missed the mark. And let me tell you, we've widely missed the mark, if that's what we do. For decades, charismatic churches have been criticized for being more concerned with feelings than doctrine. And and I'll admit, I'm sure you would agree with me, that there have always been and will always be situations where people get things out of balance. You know, where where well-meaning people um, get caught up in emotions and and, and lose the grounding of of the truth of the Scripture, of of the Bible. But on the other hand, I want you to consider this. It is also possible to become so stiff, so serious, so staid, so structured that we turn off our feelings and we turn off our emotions. I'd like you to consider this question. Think about this. Is it okay to take pleasure in worshiping and praising God? Ponder that. Think about that. Is that okay? I I think we can all agree that the primary purpose of worship and praise is to glorify God, right? Not ourselves. To bring pleasure to God, bring pleasure to God, not ourselves. If you've heard me preach before on worship and praise, you've you've likely heard me say that. But my question is, is it wrong? Is it wrong for a person, for example, to say, I really enjoyed the service today? What do you think about that? I mean, we've all heard it, right? We walk out, we're in the parking lot, we're in the the lobby. Man, I enjoyed church today. Man, I enjoyed it. Here's the thing. As long as we keep our priorities straight, I don't think that's wrong. I I don't think it's wrong at all. John Piper is a well-known preacher, um, writer, theologian. And, And John Piper gives this example. Suppose I come home to my wife on our wedding anniversary and I bring her a dozen roses. Um, she's gonna open the door. She flings her arms around my neck. She's hugging me. She's thanking me for the roses, and I could have one of two responses. Um, I could say, "Yeah, I had to buy these for you. It's my duty. It's what husbands are supposed to do on anniversaries." How is she going to respond? Yeah, you think she'd be happy about that? Um, however, if I say my wife's name is Glennis, so I'd say Glennis. If I said, Glynis, I love you, and it it just gives me so much pleasure to give you these flowers. You think she's going to look at me and say, you are so selfish. I can't believe you just did that for yourself. You don't even care about. No, she's not. She's going to love it. She's going to love it. She will respond positively, seeing that the pleasure I gained from getting her flowers dignifies both the act and the action. That's what that pleasure does. What John Piper is saying that it is not only authentic to take pleasure in pleasing someone we love, but it actually dignifies what we do. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote. In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis said, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Readers praise their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is appointed consummation. Lewis is saying that praise is not just done because the object of praise is worthy, which it is, right? And we can't argue that. But also because praise itself completes the joy and delight we find in that object. Do you delight in the Lord? Do you find joy in God's presence and in being a child of his? Let that enjoyment, it's okay, let that enjoyment overflow into praise. You know, I've heard it preached so many times. And if you've been around church, I'm sure you have too. um, That we should worship and praise God because the Bible tells us to. Can't argue with it, right? I mean, the Bible does tell us to do that. But listen, God doesn't desire worshipers who worship out of duty. Everything we do, everything must begin with love for God. Jesus himself said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And this is where our worship and praise, as with everything we do, must start. Many of you have heard me speak in the past about being all in in our worship and praise. You've heard me talk about how David wrote, let everything within me bless his name, from Psalm 103. And, and, and maybe you've heard me talk about how Jesus said, the worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. For those are the kind of worshipers the Father desires. And all those things are true, but I want you to hear another scripture today from Isaiah This is what the prophet Isaiah says. The Lord says, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once again, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. For thousands of years, we have endured innumerable human rules, telling us how to worship God, telling us how not to worship God as well. Yeah, as I've studied psalmody and hymnody, yeah, those are those are things; those are real words. And as I've I've studied the evolution of church music through the ages, I am just amazed at how we are capable of creating rules of worship that fit our tastes and our convictions but have no basis in Scripture, no basis in Scripture. And we can faithfully follow those rules and our hearts can still be far from God. Just as he said to the prophet Isaiah over 2,700 years ago, his sentence on those hearts who were far from him and who worship based on human rules was this the wisdom of the wise will perish the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish now wisdom and intelligence are both virtues aren't they they are they are good things they're things that we could stru- we should should strive for but when they leave god out of the equation and when they supplant his will with human rules When wisdom and intelligence produce ritualistic worshipers whose hearts are far from God, he will reduce them to foolishness. If you don't believe me, I'd love for you to read some of the things. As I've I've studied comments that have made hundreds and hundreds of years ago, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, um, their passionate arguments from these centuries ago regarding, at the time, new forms of worship and how ungodly they were and how worldly they were and wicked they were and and, you know looking back through the lens of time you read those statements and truly they sound like foolishness (laughs) they really do today so here's the deal instead of creating our own 21st century rubric of how praise and worship is supposed to be done how about we concentrate on being people whose hearts are not far from god People who love him passionately and take pleasure and joy in him. Jonathan Edwards was a minister, theologian, and evangelist in the the mid-18th century. Jonathan Edwards led the First Great Awakening, which is one of the great revivals of modern times. and, And this is something he had to say. He said, a truly practical or saving faith is light and heat together or rather light and love while that which is a speculative faith is only light without heat and in that it lacks spiritual heat or divine love it is vain and good for nothing light and heat together I love this metaphor from Jonathan Edwards Um, light is understanding knowledge revelation and everything we do must be based on knowledge of God's word and truth, right? It it must be. It's got to be. That's got to be our basis. But such knowledge must be combined with passion or in Edwards' words, spiritual heat or divine love. In another one of his writings, he describes heat as fervency of spirit and zeal for God. Now, I want to stress, here's something that I think is important. Passion may look different to you than it does to me. When um, Jenny or Andy or I are up here leading worship in a worship service, we don't expect to look out in the congregation and see everybody doing exactly the same thing. You know, we all have different personalities. Some of us are extroverted. Some are introverted. We are all in different places of our spiritual walk. We all have... I have different immediate situations that we're living through. You know, we may have some, some heartbreaking troubles right now, or we may be maybe going through amazing victories right now in our lives. But here's the thing. Regardless, we can still worship and praise God with passion. Even if passion for me looks different than it looks for you. And that, this morning, is what I want to encourage you to do. This, this is the crux of my message. Worship and praise God with passion. Take pleasure in him. Let your worship come from loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. Amen? Praise God. Yeah, give him praise. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, God. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand, please. I want to mention one more thing before we, before we leave, and, and, and that's this. Isaiah talked about people who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him, right? Well, today, in a group of people this large, I'm quite certain a group of people this large, there are those here who don't know God, those whose hearts are far from him. You know, you may have come in and, and sung along with us and maybe clapped your hands and Maybe you to lift a hand up a bit. But you have to admit, look in your heart of hearts, you have to admit that your heart is far from God. Um, Jesus said, there will be people in that day, and by that day, he means, you know, the day of judgment, the final, final day. And he says, there are going to be people that come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff? And I say, Lord, didn't. you know, we went to Calvary and We sang with Dan and Jenny and Andy, and um, we lifted our hands, and we clapped. We did all this stuff, and, and it says Jesus is going to look at them and say, I never knew you depart from me. Today you may have looked around at people worshiping and praising, and, and maybe they're doing what I was talking about. They're praising with passion, and, and they're praising with heart, so they're just bursting with love for God. And, you know, maybe there's tears coming down their cheek, and, 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 and you have to acknowledge they, they've got something I don't. I don't get it. What do they have? They got something I don't This is what I want to tell you. They worship and praise someone they know. And their hearts are near to God. And I'm telling you that every one of us today, we can, we can have that same relationship. Every one of you. You can have that relationship with your heart is right with God. The Bible says this. Listen. The Bible says, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Yeah, and you can do that today. Today is the day you can begin a new journey, and you can have what almost everyone in this room has as well. Let's bow our heads, please. Please bow our heads. If you've listened to this, and, and you're thinking, especially what I just said here at the end, you're thinking, man, I, I look at my heart, and I'd, I don't see it. I'd, I seem to be far from God. I don't seem to have what everyone else has. But I want it. But I want it. I want to start that journey today. Quickly, we're going to wrap up. Quickly, raise your hands. Quickly, raise your hand. Okay. Okay. Let's all pray this together on benefit of people who, for the benefit of people who do want to accept Christ today. Let's all pray this. Dear God, I want to find what others in this room have found. I know that like everyone in this room I'm guilty of sin. And like everyone in this room, I need a Savior. So I confess Jesus is Lord, and I believe you raised him from the dead. I want to live a new life in Jesus. Forgive me of all my sins, change my heart to be more like you. Fill me with your joy and peace. Help me to be all in for him who died for me. Thank you for this amazing gift. Amen. Yes. Come on, let Thank you, Lord. Thank you for rebirth and new life, Lord. Hallelujah.